Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. This is going to be a story about the Lynch brothers. There are three of them, and if you didn't like one, try another, because the Lynch brother others found too sour or too sweet might be just to your taste. The Lynch brothers, the orphans Lynch. All of them had been made by dreams, one way or another. They were all handsome devils, down to the last one. They looked after themselves. Their mother, Aurora, had died the way some dreams did, gruesomely, blamelessly, unexpectedly. Their father, Niall, had been killed, or murdered, depending on how human you considered him. Were there other lynches? It seemed unlikely. Lynches seemed to be very good at dying. Dreams are not the safest thing to build a life on. That was acclaimed author Maggie Stiefvater reading from her latest novel, Call Down the Hawk, the first book in a brand new trilogy. Maggie describes the book as a, quote, big, strange, weird novel. It's full of all the things she likes in both novels and life. That includes art, music, magic, and mythology. Call Down the Hawk follows Ronan Lynch, a character who can take things out of his dreams and bring them into real life, and Jordan Hennessy, an artist, a thief, and maybe something else. If you're a fan of young adult literature, you're probably familiar with Maggie's work. She is the New York Times best-selling author of The Raven Cycle, The Shiver Trilogy, and The Scorpio Races. Today, I'll talk with her and award-winning author Scott Westerfeld about what it's like to expand a fictional universe for eager fans. Scott is the author of the Ugly series, the Levithian Trilogy, and Imposters, among many other titles. First, here's Maggie. Hi, Maggie. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, we are thrilled and your fans are out there chomping at the bit. So let's get started. First, with The Raven Cycle, could you talk a little bit about that series, which kicked off in 2012 and what inspired it? The Raven Cycle definitely began when I was a kid. When I was a kid, one of my favorite series was The Darkest Rising by Susan Cooper. And it's an older fantasy series. It was written in the 70s. It was about um, old Welsh legends taking place in what was then current day Wales. And at the time, it was the first series that I had ever read that combined old magic with the real world and made both of them feel equally plausible. And it was also an incredibly um, organized series. It knew where it was headed. And so I thought at that time, I want to do that. And so the Raven Cycle is not much like it in many other ways, but that was definitely the starting seed for it. The idea of pulling mythology into the real world with a very structured series that knew where it was headed. Now you have a new novel, Call Down the Hawk. Tell us how it grew out of the Raven Cycle. 
in many ways, Call Down the Hawk started even before the Raven Cycle, actually, because I got an old piece of advice when I was a kid, which is you should write what you love to read. And when I was a kid, the books that I loved to read were completely different. On the one hand, my mom would give me these wonderful award-winning fantasies with award stickers on the front that told me they were good for me, like Wrinkle in Time and Chronicles of Narnia. And I loved them. And then my dad, who was a flight surgeon in the Navy, which meant that he could fly planes, but if your arm fell off while you were flying a plane, he could sew it back on too. He could do all of these things. Would give me his hand-me-down books that were these um, throwaway thrillers called things like Point Blank and Shot in the Back. And they were just these big pulpy. They never had award stickers on the front of them. <laughs> they were not good for you. And I loved them uh. too. And I always thought, well, if I'm supposed to write the books that I love to read, well, this is the these are the books that I love to read and they're nothing alike. But I always thought that the perfect book would combine them. And I have to say, I sort of shot for it and missed with The Raven Cycle. And I think I got a little closer with Call Down the Hawk. So the whole idea with this trilogy was to reboot it, look deeper into the Lynch family, and also dig into that playground of thriller plus fantasy. The Lynch brothers are very popular, especially Ronan, with your fans. So let's talk about him. He takes on increasing significance in The Raven Cycle. And here you really explore him in a new way. So when did you know you wanted to seize on his character? Ronan Lynch is an incredibly old character. I started writing The Raven Cycle when I was 19. And at the time, I was a terrible writer, as beginning writers often are. And I had to abandon it. And it took many other books written between then and when I actually successfully wrote it to figure out how to balance that many characters and the magic and the mythology with the real world. But Ronan Lynch originally was the core of that series. It started with his story. And so I eased my way into it in The Raven Cycle, fearing that this power of his, the ability to take your your dreams and make them reality would be such a cool thing that it would overwhelm everybody else's story. And so I, I always wanted to tell more of Ronan's story, but I also always knew that I would never dive back into this world unless I tonally had something else to say, a new metaphor to talk about. To me, magic doesn't make any sense unless it's actually talking about something else. And so this is a whole new kind of trilogy, which is about uh, basically the burden of creativity. And how did that strike you, that you could go down that path? Well, the longer I wrote Ronan, the more I couldn't decide if he had an incredible power or if he had an incredible curse or if he had an incredible responsibility or all of the above. Because if you could dream something into life, at first, it's like a, a child's game, right? You can, If you want a toy, you could have that toy if you could think of it. Then you realize it's a horror Instead, if you have a nightmare, you have that nightmare. And then as you get older, you think, wait, so could I dream the cure for cancer? Then is it responsibility? If you've been, if you're Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. So who do you want to be? And so the story of Ronan becomes more interesting as he gets older and more complicated. And so once I looked back at that and started looking at the way that other creators in my life are really starting to balance the weight of talent, skill, responsibility, that became a new story I wanted to tell. Do you yourself feel that weight, especially with your fans hanging on your every word? <laughs> I do. I've always thought, well, if you've been given a skill, you should, you should be using it for something interesting. Also, just as a writer, there's so much of a conversation already happening. And so if you open your mouth, it has to be something new and interesting. Otherwise, why aren't you just sitting quietly and listening for other voices to say something interesting? So definitely a sense of responsibility. Thrill, 
horror, <laughs> excitement, <laughs> responsibility. It's all there. I wonder what you're most excited about as you introduce this new world to your readers. I'm actually most excited about a brand new character, Jordan Hennessy. I have to say, before I was a full-time author, I was a full-time portrait artist, and I'm a huge fan of art and the art world and everything having to do with learning art. And one of my dark pleasures is the world of art forgery. When I was a college student, my favorite class was called Forgery in History, and a full 90% of our grade was forging a historical document, and the remaining 10% was busting another student's forgery. And my forgery was unbustable. My professor released me with an A, and he said grudgingly, I think I've created a monster. (laughs) (laughs) Creativity. You're multi-talented, to to put it mildly (laughs) Uh, How does being able to visualize this world and even how does your music, how do they play into your writing, I wondered? One of the things that was most satisfying about Call Down the Hawk is that it's probably my most Celtic of novels in every way. It has more Celtic mythology and more Celtic music, more of all of that stuffed into it, really. Even down to the structure of it is more like Celtic legends. And it's been satisfying It's a step that I couldn't do when I was a younger writer and I think not as good of a writer because it's one thing to write about mythology. It's another thing to write about your mythology and your culture and invite other people in. You have to know enough about it to be able to step outside of it to see the parts that other people might not get. To be able to say, yep, I know this part's a little crunchy. Here, I'm holding out my hand to you. Come with me. So there's one bit in there about um, the kind of taboos that come in Celtic mythology that I loved being able to splash around in there. But as far as the art and the music goes. Can I can I say this? Yes, probably. There's going to be a, a little artistic extra that is going to happen if you get this book through independent booksellers. And again, like I said, you'll hear the music on the audiobook. So it feels like you get to a lot of Maggie in, in this book. What's next for Ronan Lynch and the Dreamers trilogy? So I have to admit, I love writing second books. I like the second book in the Raven Cycle the best. I like the second book in the Shiver Trilogy the best. You get all of the exposition and the setting down of the emotional stakes out of the way, and now you can just get down to brass tacks. So I'm having a huge amount of fun with... um, writing the second book, which I can't say too much about, except that if the first book is very much looking at the burden of creativity and also is very much about the loneliness of creativity, trying to find your people, the second book is about what happens when you find people who are fellow creators and all the complications that arise from that. Basically, when I was a kid, I was told to go off and start a band, and I did. And book two is, so we've started a band. (laughs) Brava. (laughs) This was so great. Thank you very much, Maggie. Well, thank you guys so much for having me again. We're about to die, probably. Our best hope is the pulse knife in my hand. It trembles softly like a bird. That's how my head trainer, Naya, says to hold it. Gently, careful not to crush it, firmly, so it doesn't fly away. The thing is, my pulse knife really wants to fly. It's military grade, smart as a crow, unruly as a young hawk, loves a good fight. It's going to get one. The assassin, 20 meters away, is spraying gunfire from the stage where my sister just gave her first public speech. Her audience, the dignitaries of Shreve, are strewn around the room, dead, faking death, or cowering. Security drones and hover cams are scattered on the floor, knocked out by some kind of jammer. My sister is huddled next to me, 
gripping my free hand in both of hers. Her fingernails are deep in my skin. We're behind a tipped-over table. It's a slab of vat-grown oak, five centimeters thick, but the assassin's got a barrage pistol. We might as well be hiding in a rose bush. But at least no one can see us together. We're 15 years old. This is the first time anyone's tried to kill us. My heart is beating slantways, but I'm remembering to breathe. There's something ecstatic about the training kicking in. Finally, I'm doing what I was born to do. I'm saving my sister. That was best-selling author Scott Westerfeld reading from the opening pages of Imposters, the first novel in his latest series. Imposters is about deception, of course, as well as risk, betrayal, and redemption. Let's learn more about this imaginary world from Scott. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the program. Hi, good to see you. Good to see you, too. We're so excited about your new series. We'd love for you to tell our listeners about the Imposters series and how it relates to the best-selling Uglies, which came before it now more than a decade ago, was it? Yeah, it was, uh, I think the last book in the Uglies series came out in 2007, so 12, 13 years ago. Oh my goodness. Okay, so we're very excited to have Imposters. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so it's different characters. Obviously, my the characters from Uglies are grown up and they're in their 30s. Um, these, these new characters, it takes place about 15 to 20 years later. And they've grown up in the world that Tally made. In other words, the pretty regime has fallen. Spoiler alert if you haven't read the first ones. Um, and, and all of the cities that used to be controlled by the pretty committee where all the citizens used to have the surgery that made them act, you know, kind of all the same and, and they were all docile and compliant. All those people have woken up and have started to create their own destinies. And as Tally says in Uglies, you know, freedom has a way of destroying things or at least making things complicated. So we're living in a much more, you know, much more complicated, much more, um, much more warlike, much more dangerous world. That's a lot to take on. What inspired you to come back to this world and to create the imposters? Well, I'd sort of been thinking about it the whole time. You know, like when when you when you end a book, you probably know this as a reader, but sometimes when you end a book, there's that wrenching feeling, like all those people have gone off to the rap party and and you're not invited. And so it's kind of sad to um, so it's kind of sad to leave them all behind. And, and as as people do in fan fiction and, and in their imagination and in their dreams, you know, I sometimes sort of check in on my characters and wonder where they are and how things have changed. And of course, our own world has gotten more complicated and more weird in the last 12 years than I ever thought it would. And so I think that was probably somewhere in my head, the idea of all these of all these cities trying to find their way that had uh, that had once been under such an immaculate system of control and suddenly these brains are all waking up and these bubble heads are all becoming regular people who are feisty and and you know scary wow so cool the action opens with frey she's a twin of rafi could you tell us about frey and how she gets her own story or why she gets her own story in this universe Right. So Frey and Rafi are twin sisters. Their uh, father is an oligarch. In other words, he's a sort of dictator of one of these cities that has broken off and become its own, you know, its own entity. And he, um, when he was first taking over the city, there was a lot of resistance to his rule. And um, some, the resistance 
captured his son, kidnapped his son, and said, if you don't surrender power, you'll never see your son again. And he said, fine, and stayed in power. And the sons never come back. So the next time, you know, so when he had children again, he made sure that he had twins using sort of fertility drugs and stuff. So he medically engineered these twins so they're genetically identical. The older one by 17 minutes is named Rafia. And she is, you know, she's beautiful and has been trained to charm everybody and is like the sort of the velvet glove to his iron hammer. And her younger sister by 17 minutes is Frey. And she is, um, nobody knows about her. She's a secret. She's a body double. Her job is to step in places where Rafi would be in danger from kidnapping or a sniper and, and to take the bullet for her sister. So instead of being taught, you know, which fork to use and how to be charming and how to, you know, write beautiful apology notes, she's been taught combat and first aid because in addition to her sister's body double, she's her sister's bodyguard. She's her last line of defense. So suits her. She's in the fray. Exactly. Exactly. It's also kind of um, this is revealed, you know, later, but uh, it's also her sister's name sideways, Rafi and Frey. So she is still a shadow of her sister, even in having her own name. Um, so so what happens, though, is that her um, when they're both 16, the father wants to do a business deal and nobody trusts him anymore because he's just terrible. And so he says, look, I'll give you some collateral. Everyone knows I love my daughter more than anything, and I would never do anything to endanger her. So my daughter can go stay with you while we do this deal. And, and therefore, and, you know, then you'll know that I, won't, that I won't mess it up. So, of course, he doesn't send Rafi. He sends Frey, um, his disposable, you know, not his heir, but his spare. So, so it's really amazing for her, though, because for the first time she has to, you know, she's used to pretending to be her sister for 20 minutes at a time for a speech, for a parade, for something like that. But all of a sudden she has to be her sister 24 hours a day and she has this incredible secret. But at the same time, for the first time, she is able to be herself and she starts to know people and they start to know her. And she's never had friends before, really, except her sister. Such a fascinating, complex story. I wonder what it's like to create an imaginary world in the future, no less. Could could you tell us where you draw your inspiration from? A lot of it comes out of the language of the world. It was interesting. I was, um, you know, people who read Uglies know there's lots of funny terms in there like bubbly and bogus and brain missing and shaming. And I, I reuse a lot of words in different ways. And And I realized that that would have to, you know, obviously if everyone's talked that way for a long time, those words would still exist in this um, in this 20 years later universe. But at the same time, some of it would change. So I was kind of like balancing how to, uh, how, to, how to bring the language of uglies forward while at the same time showing that it had new characteristics. And, and for example, the, words, uh, the word police never appears in uglies. Everyone is like there's wardens. And even the people who are like the CIA are called special circumstances. So everything is just is very soft and fuzzy and kind of fairy tale like. Whereas in this new world, you, you actually have like soldiers. So so words that like the word soldier wouldn't even exist in the ugliest world. But now you have these concepts. So it's kind of like so it's fun to have the old the old words like aren't quite enough to take care of what's going on in the new world. And that tension is kind of there between the two books. Oh, my goodness. Tell us about the creative process. Like, do you have a huge diagram with what goes on in the uglies and how it's going to move forward? 
Um, I don't, yeah, I do some stuff with diagrams. I like maps a lot. Um, all of the cities in the uglies and imposters world do map onto real cities in the world and their names are slightly changed. Like Diego is San Diego and, um, Shreve is Shreveport. And so it's not, they're not that different, but, um, but of course the coastlines have changed a little in 300 years, but it's not just maps. I also have the entire uglies quartet in this one big word file and i so i can search it to see if a word like police or soldier or something even appears in it so i so i have like that's my favorite reference material really is to be able to to search to see if i've used this kind of word before oh wow what draws you to science fiction and then to dystopian stories i mean i i always liked science fiction when i was little and i think it's kind of we're not little but when i was a teenager and i think it's because you know, teenagers don't accept the world the way it is. When you're 15, you're just getting, you're just starting to put it together. And you're just old enough to realize that your parents have been telling you stuff that's not true. And your history books have been telling you stuff that maybe could have been told, you know, stories that could have been told a different way. So you're not, you're not just going to accept the world the way it is. And I think little kids accept it because they don't really know any better. Adults accept it because they kind of got used to it. But teenagers are like the perfect, they're like the thin end of the of the wedge for change because they are, you know, they, they don't accept the world necessarily. And they're just old enough to start to have enough power to ask questions and to even to make their own change. So imagining an, a world, a science fictional world that's completely different is electrifying to them because it, it, it imagines all the futures that they're going to live in. Well, that's such a great observation. I wonder what your fans, how your fans have reacted to the new series, both people who are familiar with the uglies and people who are not. Yeah, it's been really fun touring around and meeting people who read uglies when they were, say, 13 or 14, and they're 23 or 24 now. So it's been really fun to to meet people and have them tell me their stories about what was important to me about those books. There was one woman I met in Colorado who had a copy of an old copy of the original cover of Uglies, and everything that Tally said, like any literal utterance that Tally made was highlighted in yellow. Like, and that's that's a weird thing to do and an extremely labor-intensive thing to do. And I was like, why, wait, how, how did that come about? And basically, you know, she had grown up in a bad situation. The, her, her house was not a, you know, her home was not a good place to be. And for her, Tally was someone who had escaped. She saw someone who'd escaped and who could change the way they'd been taught to feel about themselves and to see themselves. And that was so important to her that she identified, she wanted to learn every word Tally said, almost like it was a script that was going to, or a spell that was going to allow her to escape. It's so fascinating. Teens have a certain power and yet they're still powerless. They're still under someone else's wing and trying to make sure that they survive. And yeah, I think that's a really important part yeah. of, of YA is that you know, if you, if you take a, a six-year-old and move across the country with them, they're okay because they're going to make new friends. But a 16-year-old, they're kind of, they, they kind of have roots in a, way that, um, in a way that a younger kid doesn't. What do you hope your young readers will take away from imposters? Well, both the uglies and imposters are about the difference between our insides and our outsides. With uglies, it's more about beauty and how, you know, we, and how we pointlessly judge people for their outsides. In imposters, it's more like there's a difference between what you see about somebody and what and what's not going on on the inside. Like Rafi's life 
um, you know, the older sister who has all the, the glamour. She's basically like your Instagram life. You know, every, <laughs> she always knows what to say. She always looks amazing. She is always having a great time. But Frey is sort of more like your real life. Like she's, um, you know, she she's always wary of danger. She always is, you know, looking for the exits. She's she's always scared for her sister. So I think, you know, we both have a little bit of Rafi and Frey in us. And I and I think it's about how we all feel a little bit like imposters sometimes. Like we we try to pretend we're happy when we're not. We try to pretend we are okay when we're not. And and what Frey learns is to, you know that it's okay to tell people when you're not okay. Oh my gosh, these books are just endlessly fascinating. There's so much in them. One of my favorite things is to write uh, books about characters who have a secret. You know, a secret at their core. That's the Leviathan books are about. A girl pretending to be a boy so she can be in the air service. My um, through a lot of uglies, the uh, you know Tally has secrets she has to keep from people who she's betrayed or who she's spying on. And I think there's something really fun about there's something really suspenseful about writing um, from the point of view of somebody who who everything they say has to be filtered through their um you know through their secrets and and i think that's something that applies to all of us we all have things we hide from ourselves from our from each other and it's not necessarily because we're being a spy or we're betraying anyone it's just that there's things in us that we're not ready to show other people yet and i think that's uh that learning how to tell your secrets is one of the most important things that you know a book can show you you're a prolific author is this a theme you explore in a lot of your work yeah, I think we're all, you know, all storytellers get stuck on the same story. I also have a lot of like flying, like hoverboards <laughs> and airships and people right. who can jump far. So I think uh, I think everybody has like their bag of tricks. <laughs> well, this is a great one. And thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you. My great thanks to Maggie and Scott for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the books we discussed, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Don't miss an episode of Scholastic Reads. Find us in your favorite podcast app and subscribe. You can also rate us, but be kind. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.